If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And we'll be looking, sort of jumping off from verses 26 to 28. I think the last time Christmas Day fell on a Sunday, I think it was 2016. Uh, The next time it happens, it'll be 2033. 11 years. 11 years. I was thinking back how many things have changed in my own experience in 11 years. How many things will change in many of your experiences in the next 11 years? Almost certainly some of you won't be here on this earth in 11 years. And chance you might still, but some of you won't. Many, many more. Your parents are living now. They won't still be living in 11 years. Mine were both living 11 years ago. They're both gone now. All kinds of stuff like that. The Bible warns us, you know, to redeem the time. Redeem the time. That is, pay attention to the passage of time. Warns us, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. I say all of this because the birth of Christ in the mind of the Apostle Paul, is described as taking place, as we'll see in a moment, in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Fullness of time. And that's what we're going to talk a bit about this morning from the perspective of the history of the time of Christ's birth, link it to our own situation now. So let's stand together, um, Luke 2, verses 26 through 28. In the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, with the psalmist, we do profess our love for you on this day. But we love you because you first loved us and sent your Son to be a propitiation for our sins. But we love you, Lord. We love you because you hear us. You hear our voice, you hear our supplications when we call out to you, and you can be relied upon. You incline your ear to us in all the various circumstances 
in which we find ourselves calling out to you. And very often we're calling out to you because our circumstances are quite troubled. As the psalmist puts it in Psalm 116, the cords of death have surrounded us, pulled us down like an enemy. Trouble and grief we have found in our own experience, either because of our health going badly, because our relationships are fractured, because our finances are in trouble. The whole list could go on and on and on. We find trouble and grief. And in the midst of it, we call out to you and have that privilege because you are gracious and righteous and have demonstrated your grace in, among other ways, in sending the Lord Jesus Christ into the world showing yourself to be our God most merciful, the one who cares for the average person, the one who cares when we find ourselves bowed down and you save us, and you restore our souls to the place of rest, and you have a great history of having dealt bountifully with us And we see that, especially in Advent season, in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, having been sent into the world. So, Lord, this morning as we come back to one final consideration in this Advent season of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, may you enable us to see it in such a way that it gives us hope in our present circumstances, hope in the midst of our present trials and struggles, hope for the future. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. I already referenced it. It's Galatians 4.4, where Paul looking back, summarizes the birth of Christ with these words. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. It was the fullness of time when God sent forth his Son, put me in mind of one of the more famous paragraphs that Charles Dickens ever wrote. And he wrote quite a few. Uh, This Christmas season, as many, I I reread A Christmas Carol and was again astounded at the guy's ability to sort of describe his idealized version of a, a virtuous household in the Cratchit family. It's just utterly amazing, his language and his sense of things. Well, he opened his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, in such a way, describing the times. 
And it's, as he says, true of all times. Most of you are very familiar with it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going straight to heaven. We were all going straight the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree only. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son into the world. In our text for this morning, Luke mentions that Mary is engaged to Joseph, and Joseph is in the line of David. The line of David. Well, you had to have a lot of faith in first century Israel to put much stock in being in the line of David. For it had been, when Christ was born, roughly 600 years, just short, just sort of 600 years since anybody in the line of David had reigned over the people of Israel in any meaningful sense at all. They had been oppressed for 600 years. First at the feet of the Babylonians when the last king fell. Then the Persians. Then the Greeks. And now the Roman Empire mocking, despising, oppressing. In the fullness of time. But from this angle, very clearly, as Dickens would say, (laughs) the fullness of time was among the worst of times. On the other hand, since the Greeks had suppressed Israel, their language had become the stock and trade language, much as English is in the world today. It was the language of the empires. Language of the Greek Empire stayed the language of the Roman Empire. It was the language of the civilized world for 600 years. Pretty neatly, about 300 years B.C. to 300 years A.D. 
And right in the middle, like in the 50-yard line of that 600-year reign of the common Greek, what they call the Koine Greek language, Christ comes into the world. And so the world, linguistically, is reachable. Almost like at no other time in the history of civilization. And was ready for the New Testament to be written in Koine Greek. And carried about on the greatest system of roads that had ever existed. In civilization, at least in the West, until that time. In that sense, the fullness of time, as Dickens says, was indeed the best of times. It was amazingly well, well orchestrated for the spread of the gospel through this particular language. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And in our text, opens with a time reference. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The King James has the more famous rendering of that and the one that we're going to use throughout. Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with you. Greetings to the one who has been Highly favored. That whole, that whole little phrase is captured by one Greek word, one Greek passive participle. Uh, one of the scholars says it's almost standing in like a name here. Who is Mary? Well, she's the one having been highly favored. Greetings. O one, having been highly favored. And that becomes the key. In what sense? What's so highly favored about Mary? That's what we'll be trying to unpack this morning. I state our thesis this way. Christ was sent into the world through and to the highly favored. Christ was sent into the world through, speaking of Mary, and to, speaking of believing people everywhere down through the ages, as we'll see. The highly favored. First then, the fullness of time was the worst of time. As we mentioned, uh, Rome, the, the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem, I should say, in 586 A.D. 
Uh, Zedekiah, you remember, tried to escape from the city, and, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar tracked him down and then uh, brought him and his sons uh, back, uh, murdered all of his sons in front of him while he looked on. And as soon as he was done murdering Zedekiah's sons, he gouged Zedekiah's eyes out. And there's the last king in the line of David who had reigned in any meaningful sense. 586 years. Now, if you go back roughly 600 years from where we are, of course, um, where, where you end up is 1436. Uh, roughly, um, it's 586 years, 1486. So that'd be roughly 60 years before Columbus stumbled into the Americas uh, down there. That's a long time. Well, that's how long it had been. Since anybody, as I say, in the house of David, had ruled in any meaningful sense. And yet here it's still, it's still mentioned like it's a thing. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Big deal. House of David. Nobody from the house of David has mattered politically at all for 600 years. And this is the fullness of time? Yeah, the fullness of time was the worst of times. Think of it right from our familiar stories, right, in the, in the birth accounts. This is a time politically in Palestine where the quasi-ruler over the Jews, an Edomite named Herod, can put it in his head and take it in his hand on the suspicion that Messiah might have been born, a rumor about Messiah, and here's what we read he did, Matthew two sixteen to eighteen. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region around who were two years old and under. All the male children. He did that according to the time which which he had attained from the wise men. And thus it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping, Loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, we don't know how many kids that was, but he just sends forth. He just go out, region around Bethlehem, find every family with a baby boy 
two years old and under and kill him. That's what he did. There's no Bethlehem commission formed. Nobody looks into it. No investigation, as far as we know, of any kind. He simply had the power to do it. And he did it. So, well, no, no, they stirred up, they stirred up all kinds of, uh, you know, and eventually, you know, the, the Jews did attempt a, uh, a rebellion. They sure did. And Jerusalem got as destroyed in 70 A.D. as it has been destroyed in 586. That's where they were at politically, in what Paul calls the fullness of time. The fullness of time was the worst of times. It was the worst of times from the perspective of Israel. Closer to home for Mary. The Lord's sequence in the handling of her case would not seem, if you cared about her, to be particularly sensitive. After all, she is found to be with child and she's engaged. To be engaged in the first century was to be all but married. You got out of an engagement exactly the same way that you got out of a marriage, official divorce proceedings. You didn't just, oh, break your engagement and go home. No, no, it wasn't like that. It was like already being married. And suddenly, Mary shows up expecting. After she's been out of town for about three months. Um, Joseph knows it was not him. And so here's um, the kind of thing that you would expect. He, he quietly seeks to begin divorce proceedings against her. And no doubt she told him, no, no, no. You see, the angel came. said, the Holy Spirit would come over me. And for at least a sliver of time, for Mary and for Joseph. The fullness of time was definitely the worst of times. It was a disaster. What is God doing? It's good to look back on such things, right? Because we often, we often look at our own lives and ask, what is God doing? What's going on? Why are things as they are? All things work together for good. What a joke. What a joke. That's nonsense. That's ridiculous. No. No. God's perfectly planned central time of all times, the fullness of time, 
when he begins his ultimate saving act and sends Christ into the world, it wasn't some ideal sliver of history. It was a time, as Dickens says, as all times, that could be thought of and you could make a case. It was indeed the worst of times. Secondly, the fullness of time was also, from another angle, though, the best of times. Uh, Greetings, thou who hast been highly favored. Highly favored. But before that, it just opens. He's in the sixth month. The sixth month of what? Oh, Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Mary didn't know anything about this, as we'll see as we go forward. She's told about it. But we're told by the editor in advance. It's the sixth month. Uh, Luke has just described the miraculous, surprising story of how this old woman passed childbearing years, married to an old priest, turns up pregnant. So he's just told that story. The priest ends up, Zechariah being struck dumb for his unbelief. And then Elizabeth, for whatever reason, secludes herself for five months. So that's the last little time reference we're given. So she secludes herself for five months. And now we're told, now it's six months into that pregnancy. Six months. Um, In the sixth month. Well, that was a miracle. Uh, when Mary finds out about it, she, uh, that's why she's told about it in the way that she is. It's a confirmation to her. If you don't believe miraculous things happen as related to birth, consider your cousin Elizabeth, whom you know to be well past childbearing years. And she is in her sixth month, the one that they called sterile. Mary is referred to here as the one who has been highly favored. You who have been highly favored. It's the New Testament scholar Joseph Fitzmaier, one of the greatest Roman Catholic New Testament scholars of the 20th century wrote most of his stuff related to Luke and Acts. Uh, But he's the one who says, this is almost like uh, a proper name for Mary. Oh, one having been highly favored. Uh, Again, that that perfect passive idea is referred to as a theological passive. Well, who's highly favored? Her God has. A divine passive, what they call a theological passive. God has made this young Jewish girl from this nowhere place of Nazareth. He's placed her in the center of human history and given her a role to play like no one has ever played before. She will be the human instrument of bringing the God-man into the world. Oh, you having been highly favored. It's the plan of God. 
She's told that. And we go on, verse 29. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of David, or Jacob, forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Now, how did Mary get that role? Well, after 1854, the Roman Catholic Church said, well, that would have been because that she had a miraculous, uh, immaculate conception herself. Not a word about that in the Bible, but that's, uh, that's how uh, Roman Catholicism goes at, at this. What's in the Bible would be, no, it's just an act of grace. Mary has had the favor of God graciously, electively, sovereignly placed upon her, and the Lord has made her to be the one most highly favored. It was the best of times. Elizabeth, your cousin, six months pregnant, miraculous. You, having been chosen to bring forth the eternal king, of Israel, as had been promised to David and Samuel. And she wondered, how can this be, since I am a virgin? And, the, and that's the Spirit responds, the, the angel responds to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child born of you will be the Son of God. And then gets back to, and behold, your cousin Elizabeth has conceived a son. And this is her sixth month with her who was called barren. And then his great theological statement to her. For nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. One miraculous birth after the next. How can it be? Because nothing will be Impossible with God. And he says, The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. The one with whom nothing is impossible, let him be with you. Well, that's how it is for the people of God all the time. That's why, in a sense, it's always the best of times. If you're a child of God, it's always the best of times. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. And that God, with whom nothing is impossible, he is with you. This is what we love about Psalm, something like Psalm 23, right? Yahweh is the one shepherding me. This God, with whom, for whom nothing is impossible, Yahweh is the one shepherding me. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And Mary's told, the Lord is with you. The Lord will be with you. The one with whom nothing is impossible, he will be with you. You who have been highly favored. Thirdly, the fullness of times touches our times. The fullness of time touches our times. Greetings, O you who have been highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now that particular verb is only used one other time in the New Testament. And that time is in that text in Ephesians that Jim read. So if you go over to that. Ephesians chapter six, or chapter one, verses three to six. Ephesians chapter one, verses three to six. The essence of the fullness of times laid out here and why it is the best of times and the worst of times, but with an emphasis on the best of times. I want you to notice how many times the key to any hopeful thing being said by Paul turns out to be connection with Christ having come into the world. Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. In Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him. Well, that's in Christ again. In him. Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. There's the fourth thing according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has, and here's where our verb is, the ESV has blessed us, but we'll use the King James translation of the Luke text. Highly favored us. Highly favored us in the beloved. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has highly favored us in the beloved. There's recently a, a segment on the news about what's, what in your opinion is the central meaning of Christmas? Family gatherings is right up there. Food of the season is right up there. Gift giving is right up there. When I was seven years old, that was top for me right there. Going away. Going away. 
a whole bunch of people had no, they just couldn't even offer an opinion. Um, it almost sounds trite to us, doesn't it, when we say, well, you know, no, no, we know, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, the problem is we don't know it. We haven't thought about it sufficiently to realize that what Paul is saying here to the Ephesians is really this. There's hope in the world, and the only hope in the world, for any human being long term is tied to the entry into the world of a single person, Jesus Christ. The ground of salvation from sin, the ground of the possibility of fellowship with God, is all tied in God's plan to this person. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. How? In Christ. If you're blessed of God, you're blessed in the sphere of Christ or by means of Christ. Little grammatical phrase there, en Christo, in Christ, almost certainly carries a one or the other or a combination of those two ideas. You are blessed because you're in the sphere of Christ. You belong to Him by faith or by means of Christ, by faith in His accomplishment, by means of what He's done. You are capable of receiving. The blessing of God. We're blessed in Christ. With what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He goes on. Even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Now that's a tricky idea. Christ isn't even in the world until the fullness of times, but but we're told, but before the foundations of the world, before the creation of the heavens and the earth, God has chosen certain people to belong to him through his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he is most certainly sending into the world. That's a radical idea. That is, that is a radical idea. But that's Christian theology 101. That's Paul's. That's simply, there's no getting around. That's what he says here. Even as God the Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in working the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives, which comes to us through him. That's the meaning of Christmas. 
That's, that's what happens in the fullness of time. That person on whom every single meaningful promise hinges, that person comes in to the world. That's why the that's what the shepherds are talking about, or that's what the angels are talking about when they say to the shepherds, born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior. Christ the Lord. A Savior. Your only hope. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. And then... Here's where the connection takes place with Mary. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has highly favored us in the beloved. Mary was highly favored in being the one who would bring the Christ into the world. And the elect are by definition those who have been highly favored by being connected savingly with Jesus Christ, with the beloved. How do you think about being a Christian? You think about it in purely pedantic terms. Well, you know, I was raised up like me. I was raised in a Christian home. Grew up on Bible stories. I eventually embraced that for myself. There you go. I chose to be a Christian. I signed up. We name a certain age if we know it. I think I signed up. Others in other traditions say, well, I was, I was baptized into it. So I was, again, the Christian home was key. I was baptized into it. My family baptized me into, into, into the faith. And I've considered myself well, you know, a Christian ever since. I was catechized, went through that. Um, that's it. Oh, the New Testament doesn't want you to think of it that way. New Testament thinks of it in this this stunningly profound way there in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he highly favored us. How did you ever become a Christian? Highly favored. Highly favored. There was a plan for me before the foundation of the world that I would be launched down a path to be holy and blameless before him. It was launched in love. It was predestined. That I would become a child of God. That's how Paul talks. That's how Paul thinks. Is that how you think? The explanation for your interest in Jesus, highly favored, Highly favored. I am among those who have been highly favored 
in the Beloved. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, it may have been carried out in a dozen different ways. Here's how Paul describes the experience of such a person going forward. And this will bring us to a close. We'll end right where we began. Galatians 4.4. But now Galatians 4.4 and following. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. What we celebrate in Christmas Day. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Why? To redeem, to purchase those (coughs) who were under the law. Those who had all fallen short and fallen and come short of the glory of God. Those under the law. So that we might receive the adoption as sons. Wow. And because you have been made sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir, through God, an heir of what? All that God has. New heaven, new earth, life everlasting, forgiveness, hope, everything. An heir, highly favored. Oh, you who have been highly favored. See, that's all in that little announcement that those angels make to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, someone who will make it possible for you to experience the favor of God in spite of yourself. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you'd enable us to see the connection between the birth of Jesus Christ and the inheritance of life everlasting, the privilege of forgiveness the privilege of fellowship with you, the privilege of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the privilege of being among those who have been highly favored. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.